Bienvenue sur la pod. Bienvenue sur le podcast du courrier sin oppositoire. <coughs> I'm going to leave in me coughing, though. Don't worry, we're going to open on me coughing. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for part two of our coverage of Bob Denard. I'm Gabe. And I'm Rose. Still a little sick. Uh, I don't know if you follow the podcast on Twitter, but I tweeted out that there wasn't going to be an episode this week because I'm a little sick. Uh, I I had just a weird thing where I just had a horrific cough and nothing else. If you've seen pictures of Rose, that's not to worry. She always looks like that. So, <laughs> yeah, I um, I'm still a little sick. You'll tell you'll be able to hear it. it. My voice isn't quite as good as it usually is. But I'm powering through, and I think in the future, we're going to go back to posting episodes on Mondays. Anyway, uh, so we are here for part two of our coverage of Bob Denard. I wanted to make a mention of something I forgot to include in the previous episode, which is after his near-death experience in Zaire in 1967, Denard went back the following year, and he and his men rode in on bicycles. Like, they invaded the Congo on bicycles. Imagine you're just a Congolese villager going about your day and you see this psychotic fucking Frenchman on a bicycle and he's like, ha ha ha, I'm here to steal your stuff. You know what I'm imagining? What are you imagining? You know that scene in Sky High where the bus driver drives off the cliff and then he's like, and and everyone's screaming and then he starts the jets and they get to the school? Yeah, yeah, I remember that scene. I'm imagining that, but, like, Bob and his friends, like, built a giant ramp to get into the Congo, and they just, like, rode their bikes up it and are screaming as they, like, I don't know, like, are plummeting down some Burn waterfall. villages. Burn villages to the ground? No, it's like they're going down a waterfall, like, after going on a ramp, and they're just screaming. Okay, yeah, I could see it. Yeah. Around this time, um, in the late 60s, early 70s, or late 60s, really, Denard would also be involved in Biafra, a breakaway state in the southeast of Nigeria. A complicated conflict that we do not have time to get into, but it will come up again on this podcast. Oh yeah, that could be like a three, four, maybe even five or six um, episode uh, topic if we really wanted it to be. Yeah, I'm really interested in like Nigerian history, so I probably will at some point. Just to give you an idea... Uh, in the years leading up to the Biafran War, Nigeria had two coups in the same year. Although that was not super uncommon, I don't think, for newly independent African states. Two coups in the span of a few months is pretty weird. I don't know if I'd say weird. Un- uncommon. That's what weird means. No, but weird is like, there's other connotations besides just uncommon. Yeah, it was gross of Nigeria to do that. No, but like my point is like most people aren't, I don't know, uh, most people aren't six feet tall, but it's not weird to be six feet tall. No, it's weird to be six feet tall. If you're above six feet tall, you should feel bad about yourself. I mean, I feel bad about myself all the time, so I don't really have like much just like to compare it to. So Gabe sure. is Gabe is not six feet tall. <laughs> I will not let you put in the podcast that you are six feet tall. You are 5'11 will, at best. I am at least 5'11, thank you. No, you are 5'11 at best. You insist that you're 5'9 and a half. I don't believe you. I'm not 5'9 and a half. I'm just 5'9. 
Okay, big guy. <laughs> You'll reach the I'm top shelf that. one day, I promise. <laughs> no, I won't. I never will. I'm short. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> This is what you around? came here for, right, folks? The banter. Sure, yeah. So, anyway, back to Biafra. France was providing material support to this secessionist effort because, despite not having colonies anymore, or probably because of it, France sought to keep any foothold in West Africa it may have had, and seeing Nigeria as a possible regional power and a threat to its interests, sought to destabilize it. Denard's time there would mainly consist of training Biafran security forces and assisting in arms trafficking, and after that, from 1969 to 1974... Also, France wanted Biafra's oil. That too, yeah. Um, from 1969 to 1974, Denard would also see brief stints in Côte d'Ivoire, Mauritania, Kurdistan, Guinea, and Libya. What the fuck was he doing in Kurdistan? I don't know. <laughs> um, I really wish there was information. It is just not there. So when was he in Kurdistan, roughly? Um, I'd say maybe 72, 73. All right. So pre-Iran-Iraq war. Yes. Okay. That was my question. And pre-Saddam uh, Hussein. At least or at yeah. least Saddam, pre-Saddam Hussein presidency. He was still very much involved in politics at this point. Yeah. This is sort of Saddam's early days. Yes, but this is not what the episode is about although he could probably be another four we will probably we will probably do a saddam hussein episode at some point or if not that then somebody who's closely related to or very much uh aligned with saddam yeah whatever let's keep going yeah in 1976 denard would arrive in angola to provide support for jonas savimbi's national movement for the total independence of angola or unita And the Angolan Civil War is famous for just how much foreign involvement there was, and mercenaries were especially important. That's true. Everyone from Cuba to the Soviet Union to the U.S. to France. South Africa, I think. That's true. Yeah, South Africa, too. Yeah. And mercenaries were especially important. Like many other conflicts in the second half of the 20th century, this was a proxy war between the United States and the Soviet Union. And this is, I'm now I'm going to get to part of why mercenaries were so important, especially for the West, because this war, this civil war began in the mid 1970s. And that was a time where the United States was not really in a position to directly intervene through a combination of uh, uh, an economy that was still recovering from the, uh, from a recession, as well as the uh, oil, as well as the uh, oil price shocks. Um, Let's see, um, having lost uh, the war in Vietnam which meant that just institutions as well as the American people were very much reluctant about, if not extremely opposed to, just writing the president another blank check to do whatever he wanted anywhere in the world. Yeah, that, uh, don't worry though, that sentiment wouldn't last and uh, we would eventually get back to doing that. Never to the extent though, we had plenty, have plenty of other, uh, foreign uh, conflicts, but there was still, I feel like, more oversight than in Vietnam. Have you read about what they did in Iraq, Gabe? I'm not saying what we did is good, but I just, but there's still, like, I feel like they're... Gabe, like, we, kill, Bush, Gabe, we, Gabe we killed a million people. That doesn't, that that's maliciousness. That's not lack of oversight. Those aren't the same thing. 
That is a fair point. We deliberately killed a million people. Well, two specific guys, really. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so President Gerald Ford, as well as the CIA, unwilling to sit on the sidelines lest the Marxist MPLA win, turned to mercenaries to aid the party's main rival, UNITA. Denard would eventually be enlisted as a liaison between the CIA and French intelligence, and from what I could tell, he wasn't as involved in Angola as he was in conflict er, as he was in conflicts such as uh, the ones in Zaire, Benin, Comoros, and other places. And it seems like his role was little more than an advisory one, with his primary responsibilities being recruiting fellow mercenaries and instructing UNITA soldiers on using surface-to-air missiles. I don't really know much about the Angolan Civil War, honestly. I'll shut up. No, all I know is that, all I really know about it is that uh, Jonas Savimbi is in Black Ops 2. He's in what? You cut out. In Call of Duty Black Ops 2. Is he real? Oh yeah, that's right, you sent me that! I forgot about Jonas Savimbi in Black Ops. Where he's like, Mason, we must defeat the MPLA! And then it's like, you and Jonas Savimbi just gunning down communists. It's insane that that's in a video game. I think what's more insane than that, because to a certain extent, that's just every first-person shooter, here the bad guys shoot them. But what's insane to me is how they introduce him, which is uh, you're trying to save a guy who's uh, burning alive in a truck, and Jonas Savimbi just says, it's no use, let him go. <laughs> yeah, no, you sent me the cutscene and the full mission. It was nuts to watch. And then that's what you do. You, you let go and let him burn in the truck. Is there, a gla- is there a Call of Duty Gladio where you help, like, Belgian fascists rob supermarkets? I don't think so, but, uh... That's so tragic. Let's see. Who makes but Call of is... Duty? Treyarch, right? Treyarch, get on um, that. Um, maybe? May- wait, I need Call of Duty. I need Call of Duty Gladio ASAP. There is a... Press F to launder money through the Masonic Lodge. <laughs> uh, press, F, uh, press F to pay respects... To, uh, <laughs> to Aldo Moro. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, like, an uh, Angolan warlord. To who? To, like, some Angolan warlord that I've never <laughs> heard of. Well, no, Gladio was in Europe. True, true. I guess I'm just sticking with the Black Ops theme. Anyway, in 1977, Denard would launch a failed coup attempt in the country of Benin, a former French colony in West Africa. Okay. So, Was Benin formerly British or French? Formerly French. Okay. So, in 1972, a major named uh, Mathieu Karakou uh, in what was then the Republic of Dahomey would launch a coup d'etat. A coup d'etat. So, throughout the 1970s, Karakou would go on to nationalize the oil and banking sectors, establish relations with North Korea, China, and Libya, recognize Western Sahara as a state, and become closer with Nigeria, none of which the French viewed too positively. Yeah, I could imagine the French government in the 70s was mad about that. Yeah, for for reasons that I don't think are hard to figure out. Yeah, no, I uh, take a wild guess there why they'd be mad about a country being friendly with China. And also nationalizing oil. Oh yeah, you can't nationalize oil. That's like yeah. rule number one, if you're like, want to stay friendly uh, with the West. Look, listeners, if you're an up-and-coming leader in a third-world country, think. make sure 
you're make sure you're not dependent on the West before you nationalize your oil, because they will get very mad if you do that. Or at the very least, like if you don't like give them like a significant like if you like don't come up with like some convoluted agreement where it's like they still get like a share of the profits for like the next decade or something. Yeah, otherwise they will overthrow you in a coup. Yeah. So, so you know, watch out for that coup and I don't know, expel CIA agents or something before you do it. Although, isn't the point part of what makes them so effective is that they can, like, is that spies can hide pretty easily? Yeah, that's true. Like, I feel like a lot of times when you hear about, like, officials getting kicked out, it's, like, embassy workers because they're easily identifiable. Like, like going to the embassy is not, in and of itself, a covert operation. You're just going to an office space that's easily identifiable to anyone who just reads the sign. No, but an embassy is a good staging ground for covert operations because you're the only one with authority there, at least in theory. True, true. So along with France, what other country do you think was getting nervous? The United States of America. Well, probably, but that is not the one I had in mind. Who'd you have in mind? Morocco. Oh, because of Western Sahara. Yeah. Yes. Morocco hates it when a country threatens to recognize Western Sahara. Yeah. So uh, the name of, so Morocco uh, became nervous as well and sought for an answer to Karakou. And the name of that answer was a man named Bob Denard. Bob Denard. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Every time I do the like stupid French guy voice, I cough horrifically. So you'd think I'd learn my lesson, listener, but I refuse. Okay. I don't really... (laughs) <laughs> i really should not have stayed up as late as i did last night well you did so tough luck let's keep going i've only been away from home for a week and already i forgot how much sleep is like needed to tolerate your jokes rose's bullshit <laughs> yeah it's kind of it's kind of like a yeah not seeing you for a week and not getting enough sleep and then being exposed to all your jokes at once is kind of like a it's kind of like going a whole day without eating and then doing three shots of tequila. You, you kind of forget how much, how like how fast it hits you when you're not prepared properly. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I've been inside doing nothing for a week, so I haven't gotten to like expose anyone to my insanity. So you're the first, really. So practice in front of the mirror. I don't know. Why would I do that when I can just save it all for the podcast? <sighs> <laughs> so uh denard would recruit veterans he knew from earlier conflicts in africa and even took out ads in newspapers which in my view were pretty successful short question here or short digression rather i don't know what those ads would look like but i imagine it would be pretty odd to just open your local newspaper like at the town you like in the for the town you live in in say southern france and just seeing like, communist needs overthrowing, help wanted. Hey, do you want to go kill people? Yeah, I mean, that's like, literally, like, so it was like French soldier of fortune, basically? I don't even know if it was French soldier of fortune as much as it just was, like, random local newspapers where Denard would just take out signs being like, have you ever thought of uh, plotting a coup? Uh, call this number. <laughs> yeah. Hey, call 1-800-KILL-PEOPLE. Yeah, I don't know how that would work. I feel like if you want to stage a coup, you want to make it... You don't want people Secret. to know about it. 
Yeah, were I to stage a coup in a West African nation, I would attempt to keep things quiet until the coup. Granted, this But co- I guess I'm not Bob Denard. Granted, this country was independent for, I think, less than two decades, so I assume their intelligence force was not that sophisticated or well-manned, but still, why take the chance? Yeah, exactly. For all you know, there's like a Chinese or Soviet agent somewhere in France. And if he sees that ad, you know, who knows? Or just someone who's sympathetic to the regime in Benin. Yeah, exactly. Maybe like a, uh, like it literally doesn't even have to be like a Chinese agent. It could just be a, a guy who thinks the Benin government is good. And he just sends, he just sends them a phone call. Yeah. Like some random immigrant who like, is like, Hey, maybe we should tell people about this. Yeah. He's like, Hmm, this seems like it'll go badly. Yeah, exactly. So, but I guess that didn't happen. Well, I guess it did. We'll see. So the operation got at least 5,000 applicants with 150 Holy shit. being selected. 150 guys. Out of 5,000 applicants. Way more. Man, think of how funny the, that process was in. Like, think of how many, like, out of shape veteran, like, World War One veterans were applying for that. Something I'm wondering is, what were the questions on the application process? And like, if somebody, if let's say Denard asked you, okay, you've captured the enemy. Uh, what are you going to do to him now? And if, do you think it would, people would be like, well, first off, I'd, uh, I'd, uh, let's see. Um, I bring out the, uh, I bring out the uh, taser. And then he's just like, ah, you're out. Yeah. See, the correct answer was actually cover him in butter and then boil him alive like a lobster. Oh, I thought you were going to say wrestle him. Why would you why would you cover him in butter and then wrestle him? You couldn't grab him. He'd be too slippery. I don't know. Oh, okay, you cover yourself in butter so that you're slippery. <laughs> Could you grip someone if you were covered in butter? If you cover like let's say if it's just your torso and your legs but your arms are uncovered, I'm sure you could do it. Yeah, I guess if you left your arms uncovered in the butter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Next time we hang out, you want you want to cover each other in butter and wrestle? I mean, I'm only I'm open to the first part, not the second part. <laughs> but what's the point of covering yourself in butter if you're not going to wrestle? I don't know. It's kind of like that Seinfeld episode. Now that I'm finally growing facial hair, I need something delicate for my skin. What? I haven't seen that one. All right, whatever. Oh, there's an episode where Kramer shaves his face using butter. How would that work? I don't know. I guess it's just like... It, he like I don't know. I don't remember. It's been a while since right, I watched it. I'll check it, it out after this. So in December 1976, the recruits cr- traveled to uh, Ben Gurir Air Base in Morocco for basic training before executing the coup the following month. Like all good planners, before actually going through with his uh, with his plan, Denard ordered a lieutenant to, of his to gather intelligence on who they be fighting. The main takeaway was this: the Beninese army was poorly organized, and would therefore not pose much of a threat to Denard and his team. The stage was I have a feeling that the Beninese army was slightly more organized than Denard thought. We are actually getting to that. So, on January 16th, 1977, at 7 a.m., Denard and his troops landed at the airport in the capital city of uh, Cotonou and seized the airport. So they seized the airport at 7 a.m. on January 16th of 77. And while one team would devote its attention to maintaining control of the airport, two assault teams went onward with the objective of taking the presidential palace. Okay. 
And he, Denard's hope was that a kind of blitzkrieg type of rapid offensive would take the military by surprise. And while one assault team was impeded by a firefight that would cost it a man, the other one did make it to the presidential palace fairly quickly. So at this point, it seemed like there was, you know, some roadblocks and some obstacles. But overall, it looked like it was uh, bound for success. Right? So it seems like things are going well. However... Yes, not without obstacles, but overall, according to Yes, plan. but I'm assuming that's not going to last. Yeah. So what do you think they encounter when they get to the presidential palace? A lot of men with a lot of guns. A single machine gun crew. Oh, that's not that bad. Please don't tell me they proceed... To- Please tell me they don't proceed to then World War I-style charge the machine gun nest. Oh, no, I was... Oh, no, uh... For comparison, by the way, the coup plotters were using armored vehicles, and, uh... Fair, uh, spoiler alert, they did not take the presidential palace. How? That must be the best machine gun crew ever. So, so for a brief period, it seemed like this whole machine gun crew stopping them and the, uh, firefight I mentioned early, uh, a bit earlier would just be a footnote in an otherwise successful military operation. The team I mentioned earlier did manage to make it to the presidential palace and uh, provide some relief with mortar fire, but pretty soon, two factors would turn the tide against them. First off, even though the mortars did hit the presidential palace, Karaku wasn't even home, so they couldn't <laughs> capture him or force him to flee, let alone kill him. Whoops! Oh, don't worry, it gets worse. Oh boy. Let's go, baby. Secondly, reaching the presidential palace didn't mean the military immediately folded. And this is where I think Karaku, regardless of whether you agree with him ideologically, deserves credit. So it turns out that Intel I mentioned uh, was pretty faulty. So having supposedly thwarted a coup attempt uh, less than two years prior in October 75, Karaku didn't trust the strongest unit in the military, the Parachutist Battalion. Not only did he expand the presidential guard and properly equip them, he turned to North Korea to accomplish this. To equip his presidential guard, he turned to the people who venerate their president, probably the most in the world, North Korea. In a way, that is kind of smart. I, I guess, yeah. Is he? Wait, are their leaders officially presidents? Like, is that their official title? Or are they, like, chairman of the party? I think or they're whatever? the president and chairman of the party. But it okay, is, there is technically, like a lot North Korea the... does technically have a parliament. And what's funny, no, what's weird is there are other parties. I, I have always been fascinated, like, what kind of guy enters North Korean politics and is like, yeah, I'm going to join the North Korean Social Democratic Party. I was going to say that doesn't, although I'm sure that's all just for show. Yeah, but why bother? Why bother having multiple parties if it's all rigged anyways? Eh, you never understood well, you that. You gotta keep your reputation somehow. But no, they're not fooling anyone. <laughs> no, they're not, but I mean, LCC isn't either, but he he runs against people. That's a little different, though, because he's not, like, from a dynasty that's been in power for a super long time. Like, his power is much less secured than the North Korean leaders have Yeah, that's been. true. He took power in a coup in, what, 2014, 2013? 
Yeah, I think 2012, 2013. Yeah. So, because Morrissey was there for like a year. Yeah. So, um, so the move I mentioned with North Korea uh, giving assistance to Karaku, this was not only a smart move, but it was a crucial one. Denard and his soldiers soon became bogged down, and despite killing six people and wounding 51 more overall, were forced to retreat to the airport. They were forced to what? Retreat to the airport and leave the country. So wait, how many people did they kill? Uh, six. And how many people did they lose? Um, uh, well, I'm getting to that. So there was <laughs> the one guy from earlier. Okay. Overall, two of their men were killed. And according to a Francophone publication called uh, Jeune Afrique, a dozen of Denard's soldiers were left behind in Benin. Left behind to what? Left behind in Benin. Like, they didn't make it. Like, they left them in the country, stranded. <laughs> Imagine you're just, like, some fucking idiot from like, from, like, the Parisian countryside. You sign up looking for an adventure in Benin, and then you just spend the rest of your days in a fucking West African labor camp. <laughs> what do you mean Parisian countryside? It's, it's Paris. It's a city. Do you mean Parisian suburbs? Yeah, like the suburbs of Paris. Yeah, once you're in the countryside, you're not in Paris. That's a fair point. Like the region of Paris, you know? The Ile-de-France region. That's still like that's still like suburban and urban. Oh my god, you suck. Just Yeah, I know. That's like that's probably what happened to like the French Timothy McVeigh. Like he tried to overthrow the government of Benin and failed. Is there a French Timothy McVeigh? Well, there was, but he died at a Beninese labor camp. <laughs> as far as I know, none of them died in labor camps. Oh, okay. All right. Never mind then. Well, then he was so, successfully re-educated? I don't know. So, there were documents also left behind by the plotters because they oh left in quite a hurry. Coup plotters, if you're listening and to this podcast, never leave documents behind. Never leave a paper trail. I don't think this was intentional. I think this was just, that was just sloppy more than anything. Yeah. So these uh, these coup plotters were pretty determined, but this coup just wasn't planned all that well. I'm starting to get that impression, yes. So the figures I found in a report authored by future Israeli President Chaim Herzog don't exactly match the one I'm I sorry, earlier. What? what was the future Israeli well, president? It feels like doing? he was doing it for the UN. Oh, okay. All right. I was like, yeah. what the fuck is he doing there? Famous neighbor of Israel, Benin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, anyway, it's important to discuss these figures nonetheless, because I think they do shine a light in just how overconfident these coup plotters were, how bad their intel was, and uh, just how much, just how hard they got their asses kicked. They got LMAO owned. All right. So, sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm not... I'm, I mean, I don't go on Reddit to uh, an unhealthy degree, so unlike you, I don't get that reference. But anyway, not only did the operation consist of 100 men in total, according to the figures uh, Herzog used, but only 20 were assigned to an attack on the military camp of uh, Guezo, Senegal. Uh, so Senegal's representative to the UN said the following. I would not go so far as to tell the council of my surprise at the temerity of aggressors who sent a mere 20 men to put out of action a military camp they knew was guarded by 600 professional soldiers. 
<laughs> 600 professional soldiers and they sent 20 guys. Man. Yeah, this is... Uh, man, they don't do colonialism feels, like they used to, huh? This feels almost Mark Thatcher levels of just poor planning, overconfidence, and just things going from bad to worse very quickly. Yeah, I think guys who failed to do coups is going to be a rich well of content for us in the future. Oh, it is it is genuinely fascinating. Yeah. No. I found some I honestly I will say I did look for more information on Denard in general in Soldier of Fortune and was surprised I did not find much. That's so tragic. Gabe, yeah, Gabe, Soldier of Gabe Fortune reads. is very weird. Yeah, it's a great it's an awful magazine. <laughs> you know, it's weird because they do reporting on things that literally no one else has heard of, so they're the only source you can really look at if you want to like talk about some, I don't know, some obscure military organiza- organization in some country most people haven't heard of. But overall, they, it is an awful magazine. Yeah, but also all of the reporting is like, the 15 best ways to kill your communist neighbor. Also, here's a neo-Nazi pamphlet you can order if you just call this number. Okay, it's not stuff like that. To be fair, they do stuff in tens, usually if there's a list. <laughs> they literally sold the Turner Diaries, Gabe. Wait, did they actually? Yes, that's what? where Timothy McVeigh bought it. He bought the Turner Diaries out of a Soldier of Fortune magazine. You say that like that's some well-known fact. It isn't. Oh, okay, well, I maybe I've just done too much research into the Oklahoma City bombing. That's for another time, though. Yeah. So... I decided to quote this person of the Senegalese representative to the UN for two reasons. In addition to being funny, I think it does highlight just how little Denard's fuck-ups affected his ability to be hired as a mercenary. Okay, interesting. In 1978, literally a year after what, at this point, was the biggest blunder in his entire life, he gets another gig, this time overthrowing the government of Comoros and reinstalling Ahmed Abdallah is leader, a man who, interestingly enough, Denard had actually helped depose in 1975. <laughs> Damn. No new friends, huh? Actually, wait, no, so, it's the opposite. New friends. So, in the approximately two and a half years prior to the restoration of Abdallah, Comoros was led by a guy named Ali Soili. So, while he did aim for the nationalization of various industries, Soeli was uh, most memorable for his increasingly unhinged behavior during his time as ruler, especially after the French cut-off aid. As a warning as to how insane this guy was, Time Magazine called his descent into uh, madness government by hallucination. That would be such a good album name. Holy shit. Yeah. So I am about to mention something religious uh, briefly. So Comoros, a... uh, Muslim uh, majority country was led by, was now led by this guy. What do you think he did that pissed them off? Um, outlawed circumcision. No. Um, was it circumcision related? No. Uh, make the national religion something other than Islam. Well, considering this guy was a socialist, no. Oh, so he just did, so he, he enforced state atheism? Well, he was trying to uh, do that sort, maybe not officially state atheism, but he was trying to secularize the country. But that is not what I was going to say. All right, what were you going to say? 
are you ready? Because I don't think you are prepared for how insane this is. All right, hit me. He told this the population of this majority Muslim country that they should pray to him instead of Allah. Oh, yeah, that's not a good idea. Yeah. Fellas. I'll be honest. Fellas. My knowledge of Islam is limited, but something tells me that you that's not something something you really do i think muslims also follow a similar version of the ten commandments and uh the first commandment is thou shalt have no other gods so um yeah that's that's a big no-no in abrahamic religion in general is saying worship me instead of god yeah the one thing i can think of in abrahamic religions that might surpass that but even then i'm not sure is if you i don't know like did what thomas jefferson did and make your own version of the bible where you cut out the miracles and jesus's resurrection god that's such a weird thing to do be like yeah i'm a christian but i've invented my own branch of it that's that's like terminal protestant brain honestly he i don't think he he wasn't even creating his own branch he was just doing his own version of the bible because he wanted to yeah That is the logical end result of Protestantism. So, yeah, that checks out. No, most people haven't done that, though. No, but they should. But also, couldn't you say that's that's the end result of having religions in general? Because there's different sects to, to, you know, singular religions. Like, there's different interpretations of the Torah. You know, there's different uh, types of Islam. There's all sorts of different types of uh, uh, Protestant churches. So, you know. That's true. So that was not the only thing he did to outrage the people of Comoros. Okay, what else did he do? So this one is, uh, did not go over well, but is less insane. He ordered women to stop wearing veils. So he attempted to secularize the country. And also, yes, he... Which made him very unpopular with right-wing elements within the country. Yeah, well, to be fair, I assume that went beyond the right wing when he basically said that he was holier than God. Yeah, that'll, um, you can't do that unless you're, like, Central Asian dictator levels of of power. Even then, it is one guy, I feel like, who's done that. Yeah. Uh, A definite future episode topic. Uh, Sapumarat Niazov, I think is how you say his name. Yes. I think so, too. I'm assuming that some of these steps were things that he justified by saying we're trying to build socialism and we need to achieve equality. And part of that is uh, tampering down the religious uh, stuff and trying to secularize the country. That's right. So, but a lot of the things he did can't even be explained as unpopular but necessary moves in the name of socialism. There's inflammatory, inexplicable, and quite frankly, very idiotic. Okay, that sounds fun. So as French aid dried up, Soili, uh, or Soili, I think is yeah, Soili began to face budgetary issues. So what would you say most people would do if they faced budgetary issues? Like, like a normal, well-adjusted leader is seeing a budget shortfall. What do you think he or she does? Raise taxes. Yeah, right. Or some combination of that, downsizing the government, you know, digging up more, uh, you know, drilling for more oil to sell, things like that, right? Yeah. Okay. What does he do? Or, or um. So he dismisses civil servants. Yes. But Let's go. How do you think? What do you think he does in order to uh, fill the gaping hole in the bureaucracy in the bureaucracy that he created? Ah, uh, he does it all himself. Yes. No. God, that would be so baller. 
no, this is actually even this is uh, even more insane somehow. Vol- all volunteer government. Or no, so he does replace the dismissed civil servants with take a guess. <sighs> I have no idea. Illiterate teenagers. No fucking way. Yes. So you're saying the teenage version of me could have gotten a job in the government of Benin? Or Comoros? Uh, yes. Fuck! Why wasn't I born in the 50s in Comoros? It would have to be, like, mid-60s. This was in, uh, 78. Oh, okay. Yeah, why wasn't I born in, like, 1962 in the Comoros? Fuck! I could have been a bureaucrat at age 16! Why he thought this would improve anything remains a mystery to me. How much he thought this through, I don't know. I'm going to assume four seconds at best. So Ely just parked up outside the local high school with a gun, just like recruiting teenagers. Like, get in, loser. We're building socialism. I don't know about that. All I know is that the illiterate teenagers replaced government bureaucrats. Yeah, that that's very like, remember in Community when Chang creates his army of preteens? to take over greendale although they did take over greendale this guy was just alienating literally everyone in the country no but it's kind of a similar vibe although when ben chang did it it worked well for a time but then he was eventually overthrown by i guess jeff is bob denard in this analogy <laughs> i guess but anyway i don't think this worked at all, like even for a time okay all right fine so anyway uh Reflecting on his behavior and figuring that uh, he had failed to alienate literally every person in Comoros, uh, Soili ordered his youth brigade, youth brigade to kill every dog in the country. What? Why? Yeah, that's actually a very uh, Papa Doc-esque move. Papa Doc also ordered all black dogs in Haiti be sentenced to death. Why just black but dogs? Anyway, I think it was because somebody told him that like one of his political opponents had transformed into a black dog. I don't know if that's a real story or if that's something that actually happened, or if that's just a legend, but either so way. So what you're saying is he was sort of a proto-Gonzaloist. I don't know what that the is. The Go- Gonzalo, the uh, Abel Guzman, the Shining Path in Peru. I don't really know anything about they, them. Um, they had a habit of killing police dogs. That's, well, I guess that's a little different, because they might be afraid that they'd be aggressive. This was just dogs. Yeah, but it, it's like a meme that they're like, that they killed dogs. Oh. That, that's what I was going for. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, rumor had it that this bizarre order actually had a purpose. Supposedly, a fortune teller predicted that the embattled uh, Camorian leader would not only be deposed, but he would meet his end at the hands of a man with a dog. So, taking this into account, I think it's safe to say that this was uh, the president's way of trying to influence his fate. I mean, if there's no dogs, then how can you be over overthrown by a guy with a dog, right? But that guy could get a new dog. Wouldn't it make more sense to kill everyone who owns a dog? Well, no, but if there's no dogs in the country, then how can you get a new dog? You could get one imported. I don't think, I mean, I guess, but, you know, I guess trying to minimize the odds. Anyway, I don't think this guy was thinking very logically. I could have totally stayed on as dictator of the Camaros is what I'm saying. No. Easily. I could have I could have been there for a decade. I could have put up numbers. Least, I don't think there's really any coming back from this, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. So 
I'm going to provide a trigger warning because what I'm about to say is very gruesome. Oh boy, here we go. So try to skip over the next uh, 10, 15, 20 seconds if you don't want to hear about extreme animal, animal violence. So after going from village to village, the youth brigade would take the dogs they found, tie them to the back of a Land Rover, and just drive. Jesus Christ! Yeah, no, this guy was, uh, this guy was fucking nuts. That's like, why? Why not just shoot them? Beats me, man. Although, again, I don't think this guy was thinking logically, so... No, clearly not. So, sensing an opportunity, uh, Denard prescribed, uh, some regime change and was hired by the SDECE, France's external intelligence agency at the time... The S does. And remember how in the first part I talked about how there would be several turning points in this episode? Turning point, USA. Sorry, what? Yeah. Turning point, Comoros. That's going to be the organization I found. Lincoln Bio, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Go to at a post pod if you want to join Turning Point Afri- East Africa. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's more like Southeast Africa. It's off the coast of Madagascar. Oh, okay. Yeah. If you want to join uh, Turning Point Madagascar, uh, dr- go to at a post pod on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> turning Point. That's my least favorite. Uh, that's my least favorite. Uh, Madagascar. Remember? Madagascar film, by the yeah. way. <laughs> it doesn't even have Chris Rock or Ben Stiller. Like. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I couldn't even get through it. I was just like, this sucks. So, I think this is a a very defining uh, point in the lives of both Denard and Soeli, because if Denard's attempted coup uh, fails, it'll mark yet another fuck-up. Okay. And it'll mean that Soeli, uh, who is extremely embattled and uh, hanging on by a thread, uh, somehow manages to have his ass saved uh, by pure luck. And... If Denard succeeds, then it'll be kind of a, uh, I guess, a redemption of sorts for a guy who's uh, who's still reeling from this very big failure a year prior in Benin. Okay, so this is the big game, the big match, the World Series of the Cold War. No, but... Kind of. The no. stakes are high. Yes. A lot of interpersonal drama. Am I doing yes. a good job as your hype man? No. This is what support looks like. Well, I'd rather be alone. <laughs> okay, Jesus. So, Denard launched this coup in Comoros on May 13th, 1978, and unlike Benin, this one was successful. All right, props to Denard. So, I should Denard I'm going to retract that just preemptively. Yeah, we this guy does not deserve props. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Denard took 40 followers of his and sailed from France to Comoros on a ship called uh, Antinea, which was described by uh, Al J. Venter, a, uh, a famous uh, journalist, I believe, from South Africa, in his book War Dog, Fighting Other People's Wars, The Modern Mercenary in Combat, as he described the boat as a dilapidated old rust bucket in which this intrepid group of Frenchmen managed their remarkable 10,000-mile voyage around the Cape actually made it to this island group to the north of Madagascar. Okay. So, obviously, I think it's safe to say Denard, pretty bad guy, but I do think we can agree that was genuinely impressive. He managed to successfully complete a a really long voyage to a group of islands that, in addition to being distant from France, 
are also just objectively inconvenient to reach from almost anywhere on Earth. Knowing what we do about Bob, I think uh, we could both agree that it would be silly to assume that this operation also went off without a hitch. What do you think happened? Uh, he, he somehow killed even more dogs. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, although, speaking of dogs, I do think it's interesting to mention, uh, Denard uh, did have a uh, German Shepherd uh, with him this time. That's, that's like the most fascist kind of dog you can own. They are very pretty, I will say, though. Yeah, okay. Well, they I are. mean, they are. It's just, if you're a mercenary, that's the dog you're going to own. Is it really, like, the most fascist type of dog, or is that just something that people say? No, that's just a thing I said. That's not even a thing people say. I was gonna say. Yeah. That's, uh... I've never heard that before. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think the reason, like, we like we think of German Shepherd dogs like military dogs and police dogs is because they're very aggressive and very intelligent. Also, because they are police dogs, frequently. You know, exactly. Well, and that's why they're police dogs, because they're very aggressive and very intelligent. And they're like, and they're very, overall, they're just very easy to train in terms of making them like police dogs as opposed to like, you know, playful dogs. Yeah. They're also, uh, this this isn't known, but they're actually genetically encoded to be racist. Please delete that. I was talking about the dogs. It's fine. I don't (laughs) think the dogs are encoded to be racist. Yeah, German Shepherds are racist. Anyways, moving on. That's something that, like, Blake Masters would claim Democrats are telling your kids at school. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, Blake. I'm telling the kids the German Shepherds are racist. No, I could could see his... So in every ad he's in where he looks like a Skyrim NPC talking directly to the camera, (laughs) um, I think, like, I feel like I could see him, like, making up some story about how, like, white, how, like, white genocide is real, but it's coming in the form of, like, making every kid at the school like brown by like expelling white kids who like like if they don't sign a piece of paper saying german shepherds are racist or something that's like if i told that that's like the weird right-wing thing about pit bulls which is like i keep wondering if that's like a coded thing what Oh, yeah, Matt Walsh, I feel like, is obsessed with uh, pit bulls and making them illegal. Yeah, and it's like, I keep wondering if that's code. Like, if by pit bull, they're trying to, to, like, dog whistle for black people. But I can't figure it out. As far as I can tell, no. And I feel like a lot of people, even if it was a dog whistle... A literal dog whistle. (laughs) Yeah, most people probably just wouldn't understand it. Because pit bulls, like, literal pit bulls, just do have a very high rate of violence and and incidents of biting people. That is true, yeah. Like, I feel like that's been a problem for a very long time. Yeah, but it's funny to say that when you're, like, a hardcore gun rights advocate. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like a lot of those guys are into, like, hyper-masculinity and to, into, like, being super aggressive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I feel like there's also this very, like, this, a lot of them, like, are obsessed with, like, saving the children. And I get, I think a lot of the, pe- a lot of the people that pit bulls bite are kids. That's true. And a lot of the people guns kill our kids, and they don't care. Well, no, because it's part of their fantasy that they save the children with their guns. That's true. They save the guns from the pit bull. No, it's like the bad guy has the gun, but you would. But you you're have a, a pit bull, gun, so you stop him. <laughs> the only thing that stops a bad guy with a pit bull is a good guy with a pit bull. I don't think that, as far as I know, uh, like 
I don't have people launched attacks on other people with pit bulls or is the I think the problem is more that pit bulls are just going rogue. Really. Yeah, no, that's there. Uh, there. As far as I know, there's not any organized effort to train pit bulls into like fighting dogs to like attack people on the street. Like I'm sure people like have used pit bulls as like guard dogs because they're very aggressive. But I think a lot of the incidences are just like you have a pet who like gets out of the house and then just attacks a child. Right, we've gone on this tangent way too long. Let's get back to it. We we have, but what do you think the hitch was? Uh, the hitch is that he killed every dog in the Comoros somehow. No, like it. No, like the hitch. Like, what do you think went wrong? Um, he killed every cat in the Comoros. No, nothing animal related. Um, he landed in the wrong country. Uh, close. They were on the wrong island and needed to ask a local to point them in the right direction. Man, that local must have gotten so executed. No, what makes this... Well, I mean, considering the coup is successful, oh, yeah, I guess uh, not. probably no, not. No, but, like, imagine you land... A bunch of heavily armed Frenchmen land in your country, and they're like, hey, can you point us towards the presidential palace? And you're just like, yeah, sure, it's that way. Like, what do you... Come on, man! Have a... Well, if you have guns pointed at you, how, like, how much of a choice do you really have? That's a fair point, that's a fair point. What makes this even weirder is that the invaders didn't want to be rude, so they felt obligated to take this random man with them. <laughs> and they made him president of the Comoros. Yes, no. Oh, God, that would have been so funny. But who this guy was, I don't know. I think he was just a regular dude. He was just, like, some random citizen from the Comoros. Yeah. Incredible. So, eventually, though... They managed to reach the capital of Comoros and replace uh, Sawili with Ahmed Abdallah. And overall, it was pretty easy. The invaders put the dictator in jail, uh, put the dictator under house arrest after killing his bodyguard and didn't even need to fight the regular army. Despite the, bo- the bodyguard and uh, Sawili, who supposedly was shot while trying to escape, it was a bloodless coup. That's a mostly bloodless coup. That's crazy for Bob Denard. Yeah, exactly. when you said Bob Denard successfully pulled off a coup, I was like, oh, that means he killed 400 people. You just think he, like, did Call of Duty in real life? Yeah, basically. He did the unit, he did, he literally did the unit on mission in Call of Duty Black Ops, where you just mow down MPLA fighters. Yeah, so I think it's, so far, I think it's safe to say that this episode has been more unhinged than the last, uh, Part of then uh, part one of Bob Denard. Yeah, okay, but now we're getting into the fun shit, right? An hour in. Uh, wait, it's already been yeah, an hour. Yes, it has been almost. Oh shit. Okay. Uh, so I have a quick question, Rose. Yeah. Do you remember when I described Denard as a combination of soldier of fortune profile, Colonel Kurtz, and Manuel Noriega? Yes. Are we about to get into the Manuel Noriega part? And the Colonel Kurtz part. Yes. Okay. I feel like the soldier of of fortune profile has just been his entire life up to this point. Yeah, pretty much. Or at least the majority of his adult life. I don't think there was much mercenary stuff going on when he was seven. At eight years old, he killed his first man. I don't think so, but okay. Uh, So what happens the next decade? uh, Will, if I describe um, all the ends accurately, which I think I will... It's going to show you why I invoked the latter two figures. Okay. Hit it. So, Denard, as expected, never becomes the formal leader of any of uh, 
the Comoros or any other country because he's a mercenary. He's not a politician. Yeah, I feel like that would go over a little badly if a mercenary was just like, yeah, I'm in charge now. Although that is kind of what happens. Oh, shit. Okay. Hit me. So following his success in 78, he does get put in charge of the 500 strong presidential guard, basically making him the de facto leader of this uh, island nation a la Manuel Noriega style. I thought Manuel Noriega was literally the president, though. No, it was like, I think it was like a civilian as a president, but he was in control of the military. So he was basically president. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, that's, that's fun. Well, not fun, actually, but you know. (laughs) So while Denard was never uh, the face of the government of Comoros, by virtue of the fact that he wasn't actually president, he did recognize the importance of winning public approval. He converted to Islam taking the name of Saeed Mustafa uh, Majo and married a total of seven women and conceived eight children. I thought you could only marry four women in Islam. I thought that was the limit. I don't know if he had all the wives at the same time. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I don't know. He, I don't know what the ruling is know, on that. I don't know what Islamic divorce rules are. So if we have any experts in, uh, in like Sharia law, write us. Let us know what Islamic divorce law is like. I don't know if he... Uh, if he ever did get divorced, but anyway, so I think at least one of his wives and one of his children were French women. Okay. So, and so Denard spends the next uh, decade or so, mostly in Comoros, aside from some involvement in Chad in 81, 82, along with a reconnaissance mission in Vanuatu in 1987. Oh boy. And overall, he kind of makes Comoros his, uh, his fiefdom a la Colonel Kurtz, uh, he secures a monopoly on meat imports, uses oh, Abdallah as his proxy to cement his control over the tiny nation, and enriches himself through arms and drug smuggling, as well as his cozy relationship with South Africa. And this is South Africa in the 80s, to be clear. <laughs> yeah, when it was still under apartheid. So he's doing gun running for the apartheid regime? I don't know about for the apartheid regime, but their relationship was mutually beneficial. And... Denard would disregard sanctions against the embattled apartheid regime, while the latter gave a total of $50 million worth of aid that Denard would use to construct two hotels. <laughs> so he was just like, he was just building hotels with fucking apartheid money. Jesus Christ. Yes. Yeah. God, truly the banality of evil, huh? Yeah, not not the best character, not the best uh person i think it's safe to say yeah at least colonel kurtz was doing like horrifying rituals and like things befitting a despot this guy's just building hotels yeah this guy just he just sucks yeah i mean to be fair like they both did for similar reasons but yeah god i gotta rewatch apocalypse now oh great movie um so these were more likely than not than not the best 10 years of Denard's life, but that would, like all things, come to an end. In 1989, Abdallah was killed. And... No! Yeah, so I'm going to briefly talk about his trial now in order to give you a timeline of what happened in 89. Okay, hit me. So Denard's trial was another decade later in 1999. All right. And the What was he on trial for? Uh, Abdallah's murder. Oh, so the so wait, did he kill him to try to seize power directly? Wait, wait, wait. No. Okay. All right. I'll shut up. So 
this is where it gets weird. I could not follow all this because some of this just seems was either just so convolutedly brilliant in terms of planning and shrewdness. It's kind of one of those things where it blurs the line between shrewdness and uh, and idiocracy and uh, idiocy. That's kind of the specialty of this podcast. That and tax fraud. <laughs> so the prosecution outlined what they claimed to be uh, Denard's plan, and it was a weird one. So hit me. Let's go. The prosecution argued that this that all this stuff started when Denard realized Abdallah was going to fire him in order to save his own ass. The mercenary supposedly tricked the Camoran leader into believing that he was about to be overthrown and convinced him to sign a decree ordering the military to lay down its weapons. Holy shit. Once that was done, Denard faked an attack on the presidential palace on November 26th, 1989, and shot Abdallah. And this story seems to be very odd to me, and I'm not entirely sure what to believe. But... I'm not going to say that the prosecution's claims were undoubtedly false because I just don't have the evidence to justifiably say that. This podcast supports hashtag free Bob Denard. We do not well, support that. <laughs> well, and also he's dead. Oh, is he? RIP to a real one. He was born in 1929. That's a fair point. Yeah. So Denard's lawyer, a guy by the name of Alexander uh, Vero, defended his client regarding the offense um regarding these events as well as the ones in 1995 that i'll get to in a bit okay saying if denard had uh, wanted to carry out a coup he would have done it better than that it's been his job for 40 years that's such a funny excuse like no actually i'm too good at doing crimes to have gotten caught so therefore there's no way i could have done it I know how to be a piece of shit. I've done it my whole life. Yeah, I know how to commit monstrous acts. You can't tell me how to commit monstrous acts. Believe me, there. if I wanted that many people dead, I would have done it properly. Yeah. And I guess that does make sense, but it is an interesting strategy for getting someone out of trouble. Rather than trying to make some sort of emotional appeal based on any sense of right or wrong or some sort of a... Supposed compassion or kind-heartedness his client may have had. From what I can tell, Vero did not make any effort to change people's perceptions of Denard, and even sought to double down on the typical view of him and to a greater or lesser extent, depending on who you're talking about, mercenaries in general, that is, that they're little more than emotionally detached, efficient killers. I mean... Yeah, kind of. But it's still <laughs> odd that his strategy was to, was to reinforce that perception. What, yeah, what you see, what he should have done is tried to say that this is that the French government is being racist against Muslims by persecuting an innocent Muslim man for his alternative lifestyle. What if? Oh, by the way, I should speak. The first religion. thing they should have done is uh, gotten him like ordained as an as an imam. That would have been my, that would have been step one in my defense. But. Oh, by the way, as long as we're talking about religion, Denard at one oh, was for a brief period of time Jewish. Wait, what do you mean briefly Jewish? Like he converted at one point and then converted to Islam and then eventually back to Christianity. Okay, converted to Judaism takes a long ass time. How did he just do it on a whim? <laughs> I was going to say, it's not the type of thing that you, like, I feel like that's part of, isn't that part of why they turn you away to make sure you're really committed to it? Yes, but also you have to like study for it. Like, with Christianity, you can just get baptized and there's a ceremony. Whereas with Judaism, the ceremony requires you to study for a while. 
Yeah, doesn't the process take like a year or something? I don't know how long it takes, but I know it takes at least a few months because you have to study some stuff. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, after the drama of 89, Denard took a wife and some of his kids to South Africa where he would remain until 1992. And during this time, published a magazine Wait, hang on. Hang on. He left the year apartheid ended. Uh, no, right before. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, I honestly think he probably didn't care that much. It seems like the only thing this guy cared that much about was killing communists and just doing crimes. That is true. Yeah. Like, I'm sure he could have worked it out if, like, Thalbum Mbeki's tried to hire him. Yeah, probably. That's true. So, he published a magazine during his time um, in South Africa called Fire, uh, Le Magazine de l'Homme Action. Wait, literally a magazine for man of action? Is that what it's called? De l'Homme de Action? Yeah. That, that is literally what Soldier of Fortune was called. Ma- a magazine for man of action. Oh. He literally published French Soldier of Fortune! I didn't realize that you spoke French, so... I don't. But I know um is man. And I guess you speak... You know a good amount of Spanish, and they're very similar. Yeah, they have some similar words. So, eventually, uh, Denard returns to Comoros to overthrow its new leader, uh, Saeed Mohammed uh, Johar. Wait, he comes back? Yeah. Why would you let him back? Wait, I assume that they didn't let him back? Yeah, he so, must have gone under a fake name or something. Yeah, or like Bob if I, elsewhere. Yeah, if I'm a Camorran customs official and I see Bob Denard, I'm like, no, get the fuck out. Oh, wait, actually, I forgot I just said that he returned to Camorra, so they probably did let him in. Yeah, why would you let him yeah, back? Sorry, it's it's been a long day. Yeah, uh, no, that's fair. But why? if you're the government of the Camorras, why would you ever let that guy back in? I don't know how exactly he got back in, but either way, oversight on their part. Yeah, absolutely. Here's something I'm going... So I'm going to make another quick detour to uh, 1994, because before he tries overthrowing the government of Comoros again, he... This is a period that you guys can skip over the next few minutes if you want to, because it's it's pretty rough. Um, During an approximately 100-day period from April to July 1994, Rwanda was the site of a genocide in which the Hutu majority government orchestrated mass killings against the country's Tutsi minority. Are you telling me Bob Denard was involved in the fucking Rwandan genocide? Yeah. <sighs> Yet so, again, genocide has come up on this podcast. Yeah. So the Rwandan genocide is not famous for its death toll as much as the, as much as how many people managed to get killed in the amount of time it took uh, in which it was taking place. Yeah. Because if you look at the sheer numbers, it was significantly lower. The death toll is way lower than, say, uh, Cambodian genocide, uh, Turkey's uh, genocide against its Armenian minority during World War One, or you know, or the number of Jews killed by Adolf Hitler and uh, his admirers during World War Two. But it was still a genocide. No, what I was going to say is, what makes it shocking isn't just the death toll, but more so the brevity with which that many people were killed. Also, it's not like Rwanda has that many people. That too, yeah. Like, you know, the amount of people killed in the Holocaust is probably higher than Rwanda's total population. Yeah, and not just that, don't forget. So, like, comparatively, it's quite a few people. Yeah, and not just that, but don't forget, that took about four years. This took well under half a year. Yeah, exactly. This took under, this took four months at most. Jesus, yeah. To kill at least half a million Tootsies, and 
possibly over 600,000. Yeah, no, I um I did a bunch of research the other day on um like the on the plane crash that killed uh, Juvenal Habiriyama, the last president of Rwanda before the genocide. Yeah. And it was it was quite a rabbit hole. Yeah. Future episode topic or no? Uh maybe. I found a website run by like African Americans that's like Hutu power for some reason. That was sort of a weird find. Huh. Anyway, so I assume you're asking yourself, what does Denard have to do with this? I am asking myself that. So, Denard supposedly, and this is a quote I'm taking from a report from a French NGO. Um, oh, boy. And the source wasn't translated into English, so I got this from a newspaper. Okay, hit me. So, Denard supposedly sent men, and this is the quote, sent men for certain missions to Rwanda during the genocide. Um, he was paid... For, he was paid by the genocidal government, and this payment was made through the French bank BNP. So he was complicit in the Rwandan genocide, it would be fair to say. Supposedly, I could not verify the source just because I don't speak French. Okay, but if he was, ta- if he was sending people into Rwanda during that very short period where the genocide occurred... Chances no, are, yeah. No, like he's probably culpable because, from what I can tell, Le Monde, uh, the French newspaper where I found this, is a pretty reliable source. But yeah, I cannot repeat the report itself because it wasn't translated into English. So, it, so Le Monde uh, interpreted this quote as meaning that Denard's expertise would be used to train intelligence officers and assist with arms deliveries. Oh God! So that's not good. So the paper goes on to say that Denard's connections with the Hutu government were probably pretty limited, were probably pretty minimal, but still indicate a troubling relationship between France and its former colonies, and more to the point, between Denard and literal genocidal maniacs nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, the literal, like, people doing the genocide. Yeah. According to this paper, the report states, these revelations demonstrate once again that the involvement of the French authorities is multifaceted because they could not ignore the activities of a mercenary who remained in regular contact with the intelligence services throughout his career, including in Rwanda. Jesus Christ, man. So This is so grim. As far as I know, none of this comes up during his 1999 trial in Paris. Well, maybe he wasn't. Maybe they didn't have enough evidence to prosecute him for it. Maybe, but, uh, maybe. you know, you could have mentioned it. <laughs> maybe. But... The rest of his life is pretty uneventful and is just kind of sad more than anything else. And aside from another trial in 2006, he lives the rest of his life pretty quietly and eventually succumbs to Alzheimer's disease and passes away on October 13th, 2007 at the age of 78. That is infuriating, right? Like he he was complicit in all this horrific shit and then he was just fine. God, I'm going to really like pop a blood vessel. I got to calm down. I mean, depending on how long he had Alzheimer's, there is a small chance that that was punishment enough. Have you, like, seen what Alzheimer's does to people? Yeah, yeah, I've seen the taking of Deborah Logan. I know what it does. No, it's uh, it's pretty fucking brutal. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen those William Uther Muller paintings. I know what it does. I don't know who that is. He was a painter who, um, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and he decided to keep making self-portraits until he literally couldn't. Oh, that guy. To document his decline. Yeah. Oh, that guy. Yeah, the so, final the final five or so or so are some of the most haunting art ever made. Yeah, because you can just tell he's just like wanting to come up with something, but literally can't because he doesn't recognize his own face. Yeah, yeah, it's bad. Overall, I'd say this is uh, I think this kind of shows in some ways uh, 
just how weird it is to be a mercenary and kind of how much of a Denard was a product of his era. Yeah, you could never be Bob Denard now. Or, like, you probably couldn't be in, say, uh, like, maybe, like, the mid-20s because France still had all its colonies. Yeah, you would have just been stationed in one place. You wouldn't be bouncing around like Denard was. Unless you were a general, and even then, like, you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't personally be, like, riding into every battle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, if, like, in, like, the 20s, if France wanted this done, they would just, like, have their, like, colonial police forces do it. Yeah, exactly. But because you can't do that anymore, you need men like Bob Denard. No, the mercenaries serve a very important function in the maintenance of empire. And I think it's important to remember that. And I think your epi- these past two episodes have shown that very thoroughly. You know, because if you look at a lot of it, like, a lot of it I think was partially just, I think part of it was he just enjoyed the game. Yeah, like, he just loved killing people. And not even just, like, loved killing people. I think he probably just, like, loved the chaos and the drama as well. Yeah, probably. Like, this is like, all fun to him. Yeah, exactly. This is just, like, solving a puzzle, which is the, terrifying. Um, fuck, what was the guy's name? The... Siegfried Mueller, who was a literal Nazi soldier who then became a mercenary in Africa, they um it for West German TV they had an interview with him called the Laughing Man. And oh, I think it, I put him under my column actually. Okay, we got you can do him. I, I was just saying yeah. I've seen that interview. And it's one of the most chilling things I've ever seen because here's a guy who was a literal like soldier in the Nazi army and then went on to to do colonialism in Africa, and he's just like laughing. Because to him, it's all fun. He's having a blast. You know, like, yeah, no, part of why things like that are so horrifying is, like, is not just, like, the fact that they are just, like, complicit in the Holocaust, which is very disturbing, let me make clear. But I think it's just because it kind of betrays, like, it just shows the utter lack of humanity in them. Because, like, some, like, most former Nazis probably try to cover up with, like, I didn't know, or, like, you know, I was following orders, it was them or me. But guys like that just do it because it's fun. Yeah, I mean, Hitler was famous for, like, joking about it. Wait, actually? Yeah. As were, like, his inner circle. I figured he personally wouldn't have because he thought he was, like, doing something for the betterment of society. He did, but he was famous for, like, like in his inner circle. Not, like, you know, in speeches. But, like, when, just when he was, like, hanging out with his friends, he would always be, like, like he would, like, crack jokes about it, yeah. Oh, that's really yeah. fucking weird. Yeah, because to him it was just like, yeah, this is what we gotta do. Let's have fun with it. No, Which is just him, still, like, such a horrifying thing to think about. No, it's horrifying, but for him, I still think, like, he thought of it as, like, might as well joke about it because we have to do what we have to do with other with other guys, like, you know, guys who, like, like Sig- Siegfried Mule, for example. I think it's more of just, like you said, it's a game to them. Yeah. Like, I think Hitler, like, didn't think of this as a game. I think he thought of this, that was more as, like, a mission, but, like, guys like this, like, they think of this as like, you know, this is fun for them. This is, it's part of the chase. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's very Hans Landa from Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, are you going to be like the guy who just like orders your soldiers to kill people like from an office? Or are you going to be like, you know, are you going to see the action up front, you know? Yeah, exactly. Jesus, man. This episode's been really grim. <laughs> yeah. Do you have like a positive note we can end on? Uh, well, oh, we have a, we have a guest uh, next week. Yes, uh, we will be having we will be having on a guest from uh, the nation of Ireland. Uh, his name is Thomas. We will be discussing Oliver J. Flanagan, 
That is a good name. Yeah, it's a, it's easy to pronounce too, which I was worried about. <laughs> but yeah, so tune in next week when the episode is hopefully less depressing and hopefully there's less Hitler involved. Although this episode did not have that much Hitler involved until the very end. True. What's that noise? Oh yeah, I'm I'm by a church. Oh okay. Okay. Anyways, uh, I think that's about all for me. Yep. Signing off. It's been real. It's been fun. We're running unopposed. Uh, check good. out. And I'm Rose. And we'll see you next time. Our email is runningonopposedpod at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at opposedpod. Our theme song is courtesy of Oxblood Oxblood on SoundCloud. All the links will be in the description. Uh, good night and good luck. <laughs>